continue to provide essential health services and not close down or be at risk of being super spreader sites themselves. And, um, and so our work took on a, a little bit of a different um, spin because we we're also doing a lot of risk communication um, with our social behavior change teams to try to make sure that people felt comfortable seeking care for things other Hello and welcome to Goalmakers, a podcast about world affairs and global development as told from the perspective of leaders, experts, and practitioners. Goalmakers is produced by Global Washington, a network of nonprofit, for-profit, and funder organizations working to improve lives in low- and middle-income countries. To learn more, visit us at www.globalwa.org. I'm your host, Joel Myers, Director of Communications for Global Washington. Welcome back and glad you could join us. In May of 2022, Kristen Daly, Executive Director of Global Washington, interviewed Stephen Sarah, Senior WASH Advisor and Team Lead at Save the Children. WASH stands for Water, Sanitation, Hygiene. Our member Save the Children has a long history with clean water and WASH programs in the international settings where they work. Steve describes the history, motivations, challenges, and impact of their work with some great examples and lessons learned. Take it away, Kristen. We're really excited to have Steve here with us today. He's been at Save the Children for eight years, and he's a global health professional, and he's also a former U.S. Army captain. So I'm sure that helps in all of the strategy and logistics that uh, needs to be done in his work. So today we'll just have this conversation, and um, thank you for listening in. So Steve, let's get started. Can you just give us a brief overview and tell us how Save the Children got started working in water and sanitation issues? Sure, yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Kristen, and I'm um, happy to discuss the WASH sector and Save the Children's work. So I'm um, really excited to have this chat. Um, Save the Children, I think, has been involved in water, sanitation, and hygiene issues for decades. Um, but it wasn't until around 2010, I believe, that they started to consolidate the wash work into a more formalized team. But historically, I think uh, it sort of bubbled up from, uh, from local country offices in three ways. One is because water sanitation hygiene related illnesses are among the, the greatest killers of children, um, specifically things like diarrhea, pneumonia, um, undernutrition, which, which has a lot of links to, uh, to wash, and uh, some of the uh, high burn neglected tropical diseases like soil transmitted helminth or worm infections. Um, also wash is, is a big component to whether or not children can go to school across the world and whether or not they're receiving a good education. Um, so in, in our education work, wash in schools and menstrual health have become high priority topics for us. And then also um, in emergency context, water and um, hygiene and, and good sanitation, those are critical elements to um, the early days of a response, but also to ensuring that any emergency, whether it's man-made or weather related or something else, um, doesn't um, spiral out of control because of knock-on effects of having people in close quarters or that are migrating and then you have disease outbreaks 
So WASH is a critical emergency response component as well. And so I think this work sort of um, just naturally was part of what Save the Children was working on. Um, but it wasn't until somewhat recently, 10 years ago or, or around that time, that we really started um, applying like uh, a team of experts to the work and consolidating the work under their purview. That's great. No, that's that's really smart to, to consolidate too. I think that that's really effective to look at those issues all together. Well, you mentioned water and emergency response. So can you talk also about resiliency of water supplies and systems, the groundwater? Um, as you know, there are a billion people who do not have access to clean water right now, defined by SDG 6. So how are you addressing more the resiliency within the water supply systems as well? Yeah, there's a lot of elements of resilience. Um, and now even more recently, people are starting to talk about climate resilience as well. But I think um, whether you're talking about just good quality programming or also planning for um, current circumstances and the future of what we expect things to look like in the environment, there's a few considerations. First of all is the infrastructure, um, whether or not the WASH infrastructure is designed to, um, to stand up to the climate and weather impacts uh, of the region and what we expect those impacts to be in the future because we know they're getting worse. Um, another one is the water resources, managing those resources to make sure that they're sustainably available and that people uh, and businesses are not extracting the water uh, faster than we can replenish it. Uh, so we're doing a lot of work around um, um, managed but also natural aquifer replenishment and management of water resources, which also brings you into the political sphere about mm -hmm. um, policies and regulations, which we do less of at Save the Children, but we often partner with organizations who are good at um, water governance related work, for example. And the other aspect is uh, working with communities or schools or health facilities or businesses to make sure that they understand the value of water and that they're balancing uh, their water resources for household needs, cooking, cleaning, bathing, um, drinking, and also for uh, commercial or productive needs, uh, for agriculture, for livestock management, for uh, businesses that might require water for their products and services. So we're working a little bit in all of those spaces, but um, oftentimes when we reach to the market-based work or the governance work, we often partner with uh, niche organizations who have really good expertise in those spaces. That's great. It sounds like then you're you're addressing many challenges within this space from, from climate change to, as you said, kind of household use to market systems. That's, that's really thoughtful. Um, are there other challenges you feel like your work is really addressing? <clears throat> yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a lot. Uh, I think um, as, a, as a wash sector, one of the things that we are coming to terms with is the, the, um, the systems approach that's needed in order to sustain these services for everyone everywhere forever. And in the past, we've done a lot of work, you know, at community level, 
on community-based water management, or we've done a lot of work on infrastructure or on policy issues. And we've done a lot of work within the, the wash system of a country. So working with water or sanitation service providers and water resources, but we've done um, uh, a worse job at connecting those wash systems to other integral systems like the health system, the education system, the agriculture systems of a country. And I think a lot of really interesting work is happening, well, that saved the children, but also in the wider sector on integrating those systems and, um, and realizing the co-benefits of, of uh, health and water and agriculture and other education, other systems all at the same time. That's great. So really breaking down those silos for systemic change. That's, that's yeah. really great. It's so needed. Um, you mentioned this before, but really working more at the household level. Um, do you involve children and their families and some of the decision-making processes? And does that help with the resiliency you were talking about? Yeah. Um, Save the Children does have intensive efforts to try to involve uh, children and their parents in a variety of aspects. Um, we do it in terms of designing our programs. So we might deploy like... Um, more formal research techniques to, whether they be qualitative or quantitative techniques to try to um, help us understand what the challenges and the needs are of the communities and their priorities. Um, we often, especially when it's related to infrastructure, we'll involve them in the design, any infrastructure that we're planning. So we'll sort of like iterate the design by getting their feedback and going back and um, and revising a, a design of like a water system or a hand washing station. And throughout programs, I think this is not unique to Save the Children, but a lot of development and wash actors, we will um, have fora for interaction with community health or water committees um, so that they can help us design the best approaches and manage um, wash systems in their community and water resources there. Um, so I think those are some of the typical ways, but Save the Children also has a, a really um, strong and global uh, approach to child rights, governance and child advocacy. So we have a lot of systems in place to try to, um, to identify and elevate the voices of children so that policymakers, whether it be at local, national or global level, understand what children want and what they need and that they uh, put funding and technical expertise behind those wants and needs. That's great. So really giving agency to these children around the world. And it does sound like, uh, I think we know that if you, if you design a, a water system or a um, sanitation system, it's not going to be used unless there's, there's local input and the decisions are really coming from the community. So that's great. You have that in place. Um, you mentioned this briefly before, but do you, can you talk a little bit more about your work in climate change? And we know that climate change is really challenging access to water at a growing rate. Um, so it, do you have more programs or, or thoughts on how you're addressing this? Sure, yeah, we have a, a few different ways. Um, I mean, first, I think that uh, you can't talk about climate change without talking about water resources specifically, and you can't talk about water without talking about climate change. So they're, they're definitely forever linked. And um, 
in our programs, we have been thinking about climate in a few different ways. Um, one is in terms of like mitigating impacts of our programs and uh, uh, these partner systems that we're working through like the health system in their impact on climate change. So for example, in Laos, we're designing a program with the government of Laos um, to, uh, to assess the, the amount of uh, greenhouse gas emissions that their national health system is emitting. And we're gonna help them design infrastructure and supply chain systems to help reduce their emissions within the health system. And so this will look like, um, you know, uh, more more energy efficient in infrastructure design and also better use of technology like solar systems to provide energy and water supply and things of that nature. So um, mitigation is one area, but I think that's probably where less of our work lies. Most of it lies in um, adaptation or in what we're calling anticipatory actions, but um, sort of like predicting using available data and evidence where weather related uh, shocks will occur and trying to program before they occur to mitigate any of the, the impacts of those shocks, whether it be you know, cyclical droughts or seasonal flooding, things of that nature. And in adaptation, um, a lot of our work is in the area of infrastructure, better designs for um, these climate stressed environments, but also in the systems and the, um, the community systems to help people identify where their uh, biggest climate stresses or um, climate threats come from and working with them to try to address them both in the wash sector, but also in, in other sectors. Mm -hmm. That's great. That, that makes sense to think about climate change as it really impacts people in low and middle income countries. I, I often find that once you start talking about access to water or agriculture, then people understand that things have been changing rather than talking about climate change as a, as a global policy issue. I think it's, it's fantastic that Save the Children and others are actually looking at the mitigation and adaptation that, that comes to, to, to people directly. So yeah, that's very fantastic. true what you said, yeah. That's great. Um, well, thank, and thank you for that example from Laos too. And um, we understand that, you know, not every solution fits all um, situations, especially urban versus rural. Um, they might require different approaches. So can you talk a little bit about different approaches that you might have or best practices for each environment? Yeah, um, I think in some ways the contexts are quite different because when you're talking about water and sanitation services in an urban environment, um, there are typically professional actors and systems that you can partner with that can provide services like a water or sanitation utility or a social enterprise that might be stepping in as a utility. Um, but you also have challenges related to population density, maybe a lot of unplanned settlements in those urban areas, which create a lot of challenges. So I think one of the big differences is between urban and rural programming is what does it cost you to give someone access to water and sanitation services in each place? Mm -hmm. um, the other issue is technology. Um, in urban centers, you can really deploy 
um, internet-based technologies. You can reliably use electricity to um, help um, with your data management systems and all of that. And in more rural, especially very remote areas, we work in a lot of pastoralist regions, for example. Some of those uh, approaches just aren't feasible at the moment or they're too expensive to deploy. And so then in the rural context, um, we focus much more on uh, community-based programs where you're actually doing a lot of face-to-face -face work with the communities. Um, a lot of promotional work, um, a lot of decentralized professional assistance to those communities so that they can gain the skills to do a lot of these things themselves without um, having to reach into markets or um, government systems that aren't really there yet. And at the same time, we're trying to build those systems and expand them so that they are available for these rural communities to, uh, to rely upon in the future. That's great. No, that's great to have an expertise in, in both settings and, and understand the, the differences. Um, so yeah, I've heard also that Save the Children's joined the Millennium Water Alliance. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, um, the Millennium Water Alliance is an alliance of, I think, a few dozen uh, organizations, public and private. They're focused on implementation and research, I think. And the alliance is um, there for a few different reasons. I think the primary reason for the alliance is that we help coordinate and um, consolidate our advocacy efforts, um, especially for US-based advocacy efforts around the Paul Simon Water for the World Act to protect that funding and try to increase it when we see it's needed. Um, so that's a really uh, good benefit, especially for Save the Children. We're a very large multi-sectoral organization. So just frankly speaking, our WASH related priorities don't always rise to the top of what our agency will be promoting or advocating for. Um, and so this alliance gives us a direct route to speak with like experts um, and come to a decision on what our sector-wide priorities should be and advocate for those effectively. And the Alliance is really good at, at doing the advocacy work for the, the sector. The other reason to join the Alliance and um, how we found it useful, I guess, is it gives us access to a lot of different WASH actors that are working in different spaces on different problems and in different ways. And we, um, we come together routinely to have technical discussions and, and, um, and bounce ideas off each other and hear about programs in various countries on various topics. And it's been uh, really helpful as a networking uh, platform, but also to just um, broaden your technical awareness and expertise within the sector. That's great. That that's you know near and dear to Global Washington and our mission of, of bringing people together to to have kind of peers learn from each other and and even advocate together. So uh, that's fantastic. So it sounds like a fantastic alliance. Um, so can you also share maybe a story um, that you have just to bring um, these ideas that you've been talking to 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 life? Um, maybe a, about a program. Um, that has changed a community or a person in regards to your WASH activities? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, I guess 
the the story that comes to the forefront of my mind is around Washington healthcare facilities. And I think this topic has gotten um, more attention in the last five or six years, but especially since the uh, global COVID-19 pandemic hit. Um, but healthcare associated infections or those infections that patients get when they seek care at a health facility because it's unclean um, represent a huge burden of disease globally. And they're also really difficult infections to treat and they're, um, they're prevalent across high middle and low income contexts. And one of the populations that they impact the most are newborns. Mm -hmm. uh, newborns are really susceptible to healthcare associated infections, especially pneumonia, tetanus and sepsis. And so um, a large chunk of my team's portfolio is, is trying to create cleaner healthcare environments for mothers and newborns, especially. And um, I was in Malawi a few years ago, visiting some neonatal intensive care units that we were supporting with, with, uh, with some work. And I saw um, a, a, a NICU with seven or eight babies in it. Half of them had um, advanced pneumonia pneumonia and they were struggling to breathe. And that, um, I mean, you can see videos and stuff like that, but when you see babies right in front of you uh, struggling for their every breath and breathing very rapidly, I mean, I felt like I was in a, an acute emergency, even though the staff, um, they deal with it every day and they were calm and prepared and they were, um, you know, doing all the right things. I, I felt quite anxious and um, pretty emotional about the experience. And it, it helped um, strengthen my resolve, I guess, to try to help them tackle these issues and resource nurses and midwives and cleaning staff and doctors who are doing this work every day around the world to make sure that they have what they need in terms of infrastructure, supplies, skills, and um, support um, from the government and from partners to save those children's lives. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it, it does add a sense of urgency and, and brings, brings the story to our attention in a different way. So thank you for sharing that. Um, you mentioned this briefly, but how ha has COVID-19 uh, impacted your work? Are there you know, the, the programs you just talked about and the innovations, um, have you seen those? Address, address during the pandemic or has anything changed? Yeah, I think, um, well, in the early days of the pandemic, a lot of the challenges we were facing were related to the, the restrictions in movement uh, globally, but also within countries. So that um, WASH service providers and our project teams, they couldn't get out to either complete infrastructure work or repair it. Um, and we saw the, the supply chain disruptions um, you know, in, uh, impact a lot of our infrastructure related work. Um, we also saw this concept of wash and healthcare facilities become a much bigger focal point for our portfolio and that we were trying to make sure that these healthcare facilities um, were implementing basic infection prevention protocols so that they could continue to provide essential health services and not close down 
or be at risk of being super spreader sites themselves. And, um, and so our work took on a, a little bit of a different um, spin because we we're also doing a lot of risk communication um, with our social behavior change teams to try to make sure that people felt comfortable seeking care for things other than COVID um, and uh, mm -hmm. things that children regularly need care for, immunizations, um, you know, nutrition and wash related illnesses, things like that. That's great. Do you, do you think it gave people continued awareness about sanitation in particular? Do you think people are more aware and, and, and feel the urgency more because of COVID-19? Um, it's mixed. I think that what we see is that on an individual or community level, people are more aware. Um, we also know from global research that unless people are faced with like an acute heightened fear, um, the, the advantages that we see or the gains in wash practices are typically not sustained after that fear subsides, mm -hmm. unless we can put in um, other multifaceted interventions to, to make sure that they're that they have the motivation, the capability, and the opportunity to, to practice those behaviors. But um, on the national and global level, I would say I've, I've been surprised that, um, for instance, we did a COVID response program in Sierra Leone, which was also impacted greatly by the Ebola outbreak in 2014. And so we thought that at least in Sierra Leone, our program would be advanced from the outset because they have all these infection prevention standards. They must have learned a lot from Ebola and we can start from step three or four instead of step one. And what we found is that a lot of the learning and a lot of the tools and approaches that had been developed as part of the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone were no longer in use or hadn't been scaled and sustained. Mm -hmm. And so we really had to start back from the beginning and I think that's a lesson that we're trying to highlight and um, grapple with internally so that we can help local and national systems retain those experiences and that, those lessons and, um, and build off of them so that we don't have to always go back to the beginning again. Yeah, no, that's really interesting, and that that makes sense. So I, I, again, kind of human behavior and, and systems all wrapped into that. Um, so so this is great. So what's next for Save the Children? What's what's new on your horizon? Um, well, there are still a lot of children around the world, especially under five, that need life saving support in the wash sector, save them from these diseases. But we're doing a lot more work on helping children not only survive, but also thrive is what we refer to it as, but to give them a, a better quality of life. So I would say a greater proportion of our programs are now focusing on, um, on morbidity instead of only mortality or focused on child education outcomes, protecting children, um, uh, so their safety and their rights. And um, I think we're gonna be doing a lot more work in partnership with uh, local organizations. We're gonna be doing a lot more work on climate adaptation and resilience. And unfortunately, I think that we're gonna be doing a lot more work, even though it's already half of the work we do in the wash sector, I think we'll be doing a lot more work in emergency response 
because the scale and um, frequency of disasters are increasing. And now we've seen with uh, the conflict in Ukraine um, that we're, we're headed for a multi-year uh, global food and nutrition security crisis that I think um, we'll be responding to and I have already started preparing for. Yeah, no, there, there's definitely a lot of challenges ahead. So, well, I, I am grateful that Save the Children is working in these areas. So thank you so much for your work and that you do every day. And thank you for sharing with us today in this interview. So, yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. It's very interesting how many factors need to be considered and coordinated to be able to provide clean water and sanitation to their final destinations. Save the Children is doing an amazing job at addressing these challenges and creating systemic change while being predictive and adaptive. Very impressive. Our next episode is called Global Quality Education to Advance Gender Equality. Join us for this discussion on how Global Washington members define quality education and how their education programs advance gender equality. It begins small, but I think this transformation in, in social consciousness of education as a human right, as real life examples come to light, uh, the awareness grows and hearts and minds change. Thank you for joining us for Goalmakers, a podcast about world affairs and global development. For more information about our thriving global development community, global news and events, visit www.globallaw.org. Until next time, take care and be safe.